This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Seven Figures Podcast, smart money strategies for women with Sandy Waters. Seven Figures is sponsored by Advantage Federal Credit Union. Today on the show, we break down the difference between a home equity line of credit and a home equity loan in No Dumb Questions. Plus, the biggest surprise that catch most people off guard when buying a new house. Rachel Wexler from Keller Williams and Rich Short from Advantage Federal Credit Union are here. And we'll take a seat at the kids' table, the one piece of advice a parent can give to help their kid make the best college decision. All of that today on the 7 Figures Podcast. Here's Sandy Waters. The first step to alleviating some of that money stress is being here. And I know it's a lot easier to just push the financial responsibility off to somebody else. But trust me, it is an incredible feeling to proudly say that you are a financially confident woman. And we're going to help you get there. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. Thank you for subscribing, telling a friend about the show. We love hearing about your money victories, how you make it all happen. Quick shout out to our friend Lori Berry, Deeper Artinus. She said she paid off her credit card finally. Thanks to my side hustle with Beauty Counter, she said, I'm a new mom, so Trying to juggle a small baby, my job, running a side business is super challenging, especially when my hubby travels out of town for work and I have zero help. I'm a hustler, though. Lori, how do you do it? I have my mom who lives walking distance away and I could barely get it done. So we are in awe right now of you, Lori. And we are raising our glass to you. You are definitely one financially confident super mom. Every week, we like to start the show with no dumb questions. And I like to think of this as your money dictionary because there are a lot of financial terms out there that you probably have heard of. You're kind of familiar with them. We just want to make sure that you have a good understanding of what they mean so you can make the best decision. Our CFP, Erica Cummings from the Harmony Financial Wellness Group at RBC Wealth Management, joins this part of the show. Hi, Erica. Hello, Sandy. How are you? Good. Okay, so today, and I feel like this is something a lot of people get confused about. The difference between home equity line of credit and a home equity loan. Yes. So both of them are similar in that they are essentially tapping into your home's equity. So it's the equity in your home is basically what the market value is, which would be assessed by whatever bank or credit union you use to actually do this loan or line of credit through. They would determine a market value for your home minus whatever you might owe typically on your primary mortgage. And then they look to see how much equity you have in there. Everybody has different rules. So some banks may say that you could borrow up to 85% of what they call loan to value, which means that the value of the house minus what you owe, if it's less than 
80 85% that you owe, then there'll be some equity there for you to tap into. And like I said, each bank and each credit union has different requirements there. But today we're talking about the difference between a loan and a line of credit. The biggest difference between the two is the terms. So how it's structured in terms of how long you have that that loan or line of credit for, how the interest rate is assessed. So they're different because one is a fixed loan and one is a variable. So home equity loans typically have a fixed interest rate, meaning the payment is the same each month. And that makes them kind of easier to factor into your budget a little bit. Um, But remember that home equity loan payment will be in additional to your usual mortgage. And essentially there'll be a lump sum that you're able to take out based on, again, that loan to value ratio, but tapping all the equity in your home in one fell swoop can kind of work against you if property values do go down. So if you decide to take a loan out and you're kind of tapped at that maximum amount, you may end up in a situation where you're actually kind of pushing the limit if if home values happen to go down. But it is a nice way to know that you are definitely going to pay this amount and you don't have to worry that it's going to change because a home equity line of credit is similar in that you're borrowing against the home equity in your home, but home equity line is similar to like a credit card. So you have a certain amount of money available to borrow and pay back and you can take what you want as needed. So let's say for example, you have the difference between a $50,000 home equity loan versus a $50,000 line of credit is you don't get all $50,000 in a lump sum like you would the loan. That just means that you can draw as much as 50,000. So if you draw nothing, then you don't pay any interest and you don't have any payments. But as you take money out, now you'll have to start paying it back. Home equity lines of credit often begin with a lower interest rate than a loan, but the rate is adjustable or it's variable basically. So it changes when we see the Federal Reserve make changes to the Fed funds rate. So it could rise or fall according to the movements in that benchmark. So that means your payment is not fixed. The pros to this is you pay the interest um, only on the amount that you owe. So you don't have this big fixed payment. It offers obviously more flexibility than a traditional home equity loan. So you pay basically whatever you borrow. However, you do have that potential for rising interest rates that can go above what that home equity loans rate would have been. And also without discipline, you might overspend tapping into that equity again, like we mentioned about the loan. Uh, Also, you may get into this habit of just paying the interest. And so the principal never goes down. So it's really important that you look at why are you taking this out before deciding whether to apply for either one of them. Just consider how much money you really need, how you plan to use it, factor in the interest rates, the fees, the monthly payments, and any tax advantages as you weigh your options. And just be real diligent about your homework and make sure that you're using this for for what it's there for not to you know go do things that are you know a vacation or something that maybe isn't something that you want to borrow against your home for all right how can we reach out to you erica how can we follow you and i know you have a million things you're working on right now yeah what is it i know (laughs) you get so many (laughs) things in the works but what is it that you are working on that you could share with us so uh you can reach us at the harmonyfinancialwellness.com website we also are on Facebook, Harmony Financial Wellness Group uh, on Facebook. You can always reach out to me at erica.cummings at rbc.com. We do have webinars every month. Uh, this month is next week, and it's how to have meaningful 
family conversations about money. This is really important when it comes to either talking to your parents about their finances or how to communicate with your children. And these are sometimes kind of taboo, difficult conversations. So we help guide you through that. Also, uh, we will be starting our own podcast soon. So stay tuned for that, uh, mostly focusing on women and the ways that we can help each other get ahead in the workforce and create wealth for ourselves. Thank you so much, Erica. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. Money topics do you wish they taught in school? And I'm sure plenty came to mind. Katie reached out to us on Facebook saying that for her, it's the home buying process. She and her new husband, John, were caught off guard about a couple things. And if it was a surprise for Katie and John, it's probably a surprise to many people. So let's dedicate some time to it today. Rachel Wexler, real estate agent at Keller Williams, is here. Hi, Rachel. Hello there. You were the first person that came to mind. You were the perfect go-to person about this because you were there in the same shoes that a lot of our listeners are in right now. You were a single mom. You had to learn it the hard way. And it's since become a passion of yours to educate people, especially newly divorcees, about the process. So what are the three biggest must-know when buying a house? Absolutely. Yes. I had, we had bought houses before when I was married, but quite honestly, I kind of took a backseat to the process a little bit. Um, so I didn't know the ins and outs. So then I became divorced, needed to both go back to work and to buy yeah. my own house. So I, I, I kind of came at it from both sides and realized that there's so much that you just don't know. Um, and now having done this for a few years and working with a lot of folks, um, I would say the first thing, and there are some people, even even people that have bought houses, but it was 20 years ago. It's very different well, now. That's, that's what I was thinking too. In your lifetime, how many houses can you possibly buy, right? It's probably one or two. So you don't have enough reps to really fully understand the process. Right. They say the average, you know, the average person, you know, buys a house every seven to 10 years. And every seven to 10 years, the laws change. Uh, the, yeah. Different parts of the country handle things differently. There's different rules in different parts of the country. So each time it's, it's almost can be a new process, whether mm. you've bought homes before or not. So I would say the first thing that most people, whether they've bought houses before or they haven't, don't even realize um, is that before you even start looking at houses, you need to get something from your mortgage lender called a pre-qualification letter. Um, when you are going to buy a house, you need to, along with your offer, you need to either include a letter from your mortgage lender saying that, yes, you are pre-qualified to buy a house of that price, just so that you've been vetted that it's not a deep, deep, it's not a pre-approval, but that they've, that somebody has spoken to you and talked to you about your debts and your income and all of that and says, yes, you, you can afford a house mm. of that, uh, of that price. Or if you're buying with cash, um, you need to have some type of statement, uh, proof of fund statement from wherever, whatever accounts that you're getting the money from. Or if your parents are buying it for you and they're providing the money, a statement from their account, things like that. And a lot of people will try to, to tell a realtor, oh, well, let's find the house first. You know, we'll deal with that later. And even more so now because of the way of the world and with COVID and everything like that, um, most, in fact, I was setting up uh, tours for some clients this morning, I would say nine times out of 10 now, 
when you go to try to schedule a showing of a house, they want a pre-qualification letter from your clients before you can actually even get in the door Ooh. to see the house. Oh, okay. So that's why it needs to be done first because they want to make sure that you're serious. They don't want just random people traipsing through a house that are just looky-loos or just aren't really serious. They want to make sure that you can afford this house and that you're serious. You need to get that letter and then it gets kept on file. And they last for a couple of months. If it's been a year since you've looked at a house, you're going to need to get a new one because people's financial abilities change, especially with layoffs and things like that. So that, that I would say would be the first thing. Um, the second I would say is you, if you're by yourself or if you're with somebody else, you need to have a discussion, an honest discussion about what is your actual price limit. Um, a lot of people will, will you know, give you a general idea when you're doing a search for them as far as what it is they want to stay within for prices. But again, the way that our housing market has been, houses are going for 10, 20, 30,000 over asking. Um, so if you put your search and you go to look at a house that's at the top of your price point and your realtor knows that this is going to be a competitive situation, that house doesn't make sense for you because if that you're at the top, you can't go any higher. You're not going to, you're not going to get that house if you have to start bidding over the asking price. So depending what you're, you know, there are people who say I'd like to stay, you know, up to, I don't know, 200,000, but if they found the perfect house and they needed to, they could go up to 230 or 240 or whatever. And that's a different, that's a different situation, but you have to be honest and you need to be honest with your realtor. Like what is my top? I mean, we, if, if they are a client of ours, uh, we have fiduciary responsibility to them. Um, we have to take their privacy. We can't share that information and we wouldn't with the listing agent, but we need to know so that we're not spinning our wheels and so that they're not getting disappointed and constantly going after homes that they're honestly not going to be able to afford when it comes down to it. Okay. And it's crazy how hot the market is, yeah, even in the midst so of this pandemic. Yeah. You got to act yes. quick. Okay. <laughs> You do that. I mean, that's the, that's the other, that's also too, why we don't have the luxury of time to go get a prequal letter or to sit and decide how much you can afford because many of the homes these days, uh, which was actually my third point was familiarizing yourself with these terms. One of which is called delayed negotiation. And the other one is called escalation clauses. And what delayed negotiations are because the market has become so hot, this has become much more popular in the past few years. Normally in the past, what would happen is somebody would put a house on the market and whenever people submitted offers, they would submit offers and that's just kind of how it went. And they would take the first offer that they got that they liked because both because um, a lot of sellers recognize that this could be a competitive situation. And if they get lucky, they could have uh, several, you know, several different offers competing against one another and that they don't necessarily want to take the first offer because many more could be coming in and they want to take the best offer. They have um, a lot of sellers have decided to do something called delayed negotiations, which means, for example, if a house is listed on just say on Monday, it says right in the listing to the agents, we will be reviewing all offers on Friday at 6 p.m. So what that means is come Friday at 7 p.m., you're probably going to be too late. Um, now, is it possible that they won't get any offers? Sure, it is. But most homes that realtors agree to do delayed negotiations, they're fairly confident that they are going to get offers. So the nice part is 
it means you don't have to go within the first three hours, the house is on the market to see it, which I've had to do before and is very challenging for buyers, especially if they have jobs that are not that flexible where they can just pick up and leave anytime a house gets listed. But this situation, you got to make your offer, your first offer, a really good offer then. Yes. Ah. So, yeah, so that's a, so that's what leads to the second piece, which is something called escalation clauses, which is another um, tactic that's been used more recently um, because of that. So what an escalation clause is, is say that there's a house that's on the market for 200000 You can make an offer on the house. So say you make an offer on the house for 190000 There's an addendum that you can add to the offer that says, however, we are willing to beat any other qualified, you know, any other legitimate offer by X amount of dollars, say $2,000 up to the to- a highest of 220,000 or whatever the highest is that they are willing to go for. Um, What that allows for the buyer is they're not necessarily going to have to pay that top dollar. Yes, they would be willing to pay 220,000 if they needed to. And for for them, it's a little bit of reassurance that I'm only going to need to pay that if there's somebody else that was willing to pay that as well that was that that they see the value in this house as well and they were willing to pay for it so if somebody else had an escalation clause or put in an offer for 215 they would win at the highest offer at 217 but there needs to be proof that there was yes those offers okay so that yeah that is a concern if if you if somebody does enact an escalation clause the agent does need to provide to you a copy of the other offer to show that it is truly a legitimate offer. Um, and and quite honestly, the sellers don't have to choose the highest offer. A seller can choose whatever offer they want. Um, so it's possible they could choose an offer that wasn't the highest but had better terms. Maybe the closing date was better for them mm-hmm. or maybe the deposit was higher and they felt more sure that the that the deal would actually go through or it didn't have an inspection. And the other one did, and they they didn't want to get into a situation where a buyer had an inspection and then started asking for all types of credit. So it doesn't guarantee that if you have the highest uh, the highest amount, you're going to necessarily win. But it also allows you to not necessarily lose out if you were willing to go up. What I always tell my clients is pick a number that if the house sells for more than that number you'd be okay walking away saying it wasn't meant to be. If you're going to kick yourself and say, oh my God, I should, you know, I should have just gone another $5,000 higher, then, then that's not the right number. You need to pick the one that if it goes for that, then you just realize it was above your price limit or it was above your price limit for that particular property and it just wasn't meant to be. All right. How can we follow you, Rachel, and reach out to you if we need more? Sure. Um, you can find me on my website, which is Homes by Rachel Wexler, R A C H E L W E X L E R dot com, or you can always call me or text me or email me, 585 943 8811. And it's Rachel Wexler at KW.com. Perfect. Thanks, Rachel. You're welcome. Thanks so much. That's one side of it. Now, the mortgage side of the equation. Rich Short, VP of Lending and Virtual Operations at Advantage Federal Credit Union is here. Hi, Rich. Hello, Sandy. How are you doing? Good. Okay. Thank you for doing this with us. On the mortgage side of things, what are those things that catch most people off guard? A lot of things can happen, and it, and it, and it happens or it's more emotional when it's your first time. 
as is the buying process, which the realtor probably told you. Um, why is it so long and what can go wrong? So a mortgage transaction is a much more complicated process than a car loan or a credit card. There's an initial look at your credit record, just like any other loan, but that's just the beginning. Much of what you state in a mortgage application gets verified, sometimes more than once, sometimes two and three times. Mm. So there's time there, there's things that can happen there. In a purchase transaction, now keep in mind, a mortgage can be a refinance or a purchase. With a purchase transaction, you have appraisal, title insurance, attorneys for the buyer, attorneys for the seller, and attorneys for the lender. So if you think about if everything goes right, you've got a whole bunch of people that still need to coordinate with each other. That alone can make the process go longer. So any one of them, maybe they're facing a backlog, which is very common in this market. Maybe something happens with one of the parties that causes other things to happen with the other parties, or they need more information from you or from each other or things like that. And nothing's automatic. I mean, there, there's more technology in the mortgage process now than ever, but there's many things that people do. All right, that can cause things to happen. In terms of what can go wrong, because it's so complicated, because there's so much stuff, there's a lot of things that can happen. A lot of times a borrower's income might not verify the way that they stated it. They may lose a job, they may change a job during the mortgage process, which by the way, don't do that. Don't ever, ever, ever change your job while you're trying to get a mortgage. Sometimes a home inspection or an appraisal reviews problems with the house, or maybe an appraisal comes in low. There are many steps in the process and multiple people involved. So any one hiccup may affect other parts of the process. Okay, now Katie did mention too, what goes into closing costs. That's one of the things that surprised her in addition to the down payment. That's a, that's a great question and that is a common one. I'm gonna use the term cash to close. I think that's what they wanna know and I think that's what every borrower wants to know is how much do I really need, right? Mm -hmm. So cash to close has three different items. One is closing costs, which we'll define for you. One is what I call prepaids or what the industry calls prepaids. And the third is the down payment. Closing costs are the cost to get the mortgage done. So there's credit report fees, there's title insurance, there's mortgage tax and other items that are the cost to get the transaction done. Prepaids are your initial escrow deposit. You have to deposit money for your taxes if you have an escrowed mortgage. The upfront cost of your homeowner's insurance is in that calculation. You gotta buy your initial insurance policy for your home. And sometimes there's PMI or private mortgage insurance. The last one, so we said closing costs prepaid. The last one is the down payment. So the down payment is very simply just the difference between your loan amount and your purchase price. Can you explain what points are? We don't get a lot of questions on that at Advantage because we don't do points. Ah, but point, okay. But, but, that, but most lenders do. If you, if you look for rates, for those who quote rates, a lot of letters don't quote rates on their websites, but if you look, um, a point or points can let you what's called buy down your rate. So one point is equal to 1% of your loan amount when referring to a mortgage. So if you've got a mortgage amount of $100,000, one point is $1,000. Let's say someone's quoting a 30-year fixed rate with no points at 2.6, and for half a point, maybe you can get 2.5. So in our $100,000 example, $500 or have a point would get you a tenth off your rate. So you've got all your costs that we talked about before, right? Yeah. So if I want to buy down my rate, a point or points is more cost. So if somebody's posted rate on their website or whatever they quote you, as an example, is 2.6, but maybe for a half a point, you can get 2.5. That's more cash that you're coming up with. 
Okay. And that's all tied into the closing costs. You have to pay that up front. It's also part of the closing costs. Now, one of your previous episodes put the difference between APR and interest rate. Yeah. $500 point adds to that APR, as does most of your closing costs. Anything else that, uh, question-wise, that comes your way that you can clarify for us? Sure. Generally, when you go through the process, we always tell people get pre-approved first. Your realtor probably said that. Mm Mm-hmm. Know your budget ahead of time and your lifestyle. So if a lender pre-qualifies or pre-approves you and says you can afford $1,500 a month, do you really want $1,500 a month? If you have $800 of rent in rent a month now, do you want to make that jump for the next 30 years? And do you want to make that jump for the next 30 years if you've only saved about $2,000 to put into the house? Um, don't start looking at houses online or in person or otherwise until you know the amount you can afford and what your budget is. You don't want to fall in love with that kitchen or that yard or that school district or that whatever if something's out of your price range. If you look at houses that are higher than you can be approved for, once you're looking at the lower price houses, you may find a hard time finding what you want. Mm-hmm. And you'll be disappointed too. Another thing that came up, I asked the staff here what they thought is do research online for local agencies. There's, there's many agencies that do home buying classes maybe some grant access. And lastly, find a realtor and a loan officer whose personality works well with yours. You're going to be working with these people throughout your process, this long process, this complicated process that we talked about. You're going to want to work with someone who is going to be you're comfortable with and you trust, and they will be there to guide you and answer your questions when you have them. Wonderful. Rich Short from Advantage Federal Credit Union. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, it was, I'm so thrilled to be here. I really am. Had a had a blast. All right, it's time now to take a seat at the kids' table. Our money expert, Susan Beecham, is here from Money Savvy Generation. Hi, Susan. Hello, Sandy. Okay, so now we had parents ask their kids about college. Here's what the kids said. Do you think it's important to go to college? It depends. If you're going for, like, a teacher, then you will have to. But if you're going for, like... A, a dancer, like a football player? I don't know. If you do decide to go to college, how do you know which college to choose? I feel like you should choose the college that's like kind of closest to you, but it's really good. Do you think it is important to go to college? Yes. Landon? Yes. How do you decide which college to go to? St. John Fisher. You visit the colleges. Do you think it's important to go to college? I don't want to. You're not going to college? What are you going to do when you grow up? Yes. He's going to stay inside all day. <laughs> I can just listen to those two. What did he say? <laughs> just stay inside all day. <laughs> oh, gosh, they're so cute. All right. So, oh, discussion about college. This is a tough one. There's so many layers to this, isn't there? Yeah, there's where we're coming from as parents and where our kids are coming from as adolescents. And and we have to understand that a bit as we introduce this topic to our kids and as we work through what college choice they eventually land on, because we're the ones who are going to financially support the choice to a greatest to a great extent. So, If you look at the research, I love looking at the research. I wrap my arms around it because it helps guide me in what I'm going to do and and where I hope to be successful. And kids 14 to 26 years of age 
adolescents, they're biologically driven to seek new experiences. And then at the same time, they're driven to seek new experiences, their dopamine levels reach a lifetime peak. So these dopamine levels, they drive the kids to value what? Immediate gratification over future gains, Mm. which can lead to risky decisions like picking a college that's way beyond their means and incurring debt that they can never unload when they become adults. So uh, it's our job. This is it. This is our most important job is to take our fully developed and mature brains and come in to save the day and, and talk to them about future consequences and why immediate gratification may not be the, the best way to approach this. So, you know, I tell parents, try to talk to your kids about college, college choice, and how it's going to be financed really early on. So if you want to start in the freshman year of high school, I think that's brilliant. Even eighth grade isn't a bad idea because you want to give kids enough of a runway to deal with what you're telling them. Maybe you're going to tell them mom and dad have saved this and this is what you can spend on college. Or maybe you're going to tell them mom and dad are going to pay for tuition and room and board and the rest is up to you. So you want to give them an opportunity to adapt. So when they start to apply to colleges after hearing from the freshman year of high school that they're going to be responsible and that they only have a set amount of money to work with, then you might not be faced with them presenting you with choices that are far beyond your means and ultimately far beyond their means. And what I mean by that is they have to take on debt. So if there's a college choice that ends up being more expensive than what you've saved for and debt becomes inevitable, then you have to ask them the why question. What's behind that number one choice? Your desire as a parent is going to be to give them what they want, right? We've been doing that since they were born. Well, I think that's the struggle too. A lot of parents probably admit that they just want their kids to be happy. They see how their face lights up when they go visit the campus. And it's hard to say no and quote unquote squash their dreams. Yeah. And, and, sometimes it's what parents are doing to satisfy themselves. Mm. So parents should ask themselves, why am I willing to put myself in debt to go along with this number one choice? It makes my kid happy, but it does also give me significant bragging rights. Yeah. I think, yeah. Everyone gets caught up in that too. And I feel like the schools, not to point the finger, but the schools play a role in that. It's a disservice when they put the big wall that says so-and-so is going to so-and-so school, and it almost becomes this wall of bragging rights, right? Yeah, and it's a lot of pressure on kids. A lot of pressure. Most kids, most schools publish and where a kid is going, and mm-hmm. kids tell other kids, and then their kids tell their parents, and then you meet them in the community, and other parents are making comments in front of your kids. It's it's kind of horrible, and I really do feel for kids, but at the end of the day, what 
is right for you and your financial situation should prevail. You should let your child know that's the reason you're making the decision, not because you don't want them to be happy, <laughs> but because you don't want them to be unhappy later in life, servicing debt, taking a job that isn't what they intended because they have to service that debt. And, and the worst consequence of all is thinking that this is the only way they're ever going to get anything they want in life through debt. That's a, a behavioral uh, message we don't want to give our kids. Mm. We want to give them a, a message that says, if you, you can live within boundaries, you can delay gratification, it will feel good. Um, you know, I always like to give you ideas on how to help the kids take action on this college decision. A lot of kids are going to want to apply to 15 schools. You know, that just makes no sense. Because you have to pay to apply, right? Each time you apply, you're paying, right? It's expensive. Yeah. It's expensive, Sandy, and it's money. And it's your money, not their money. So give them a set amount of money. Don't say you can't apply to 15 schools right out of the box. Say you've got $300 for school applications, and then they can make the choice. And they'll whittle the list down to what their top three priorities are. And if they want to do more, tell them they're welcome to, but they need to finance it. Then tell them, go to the school library, talk to the guidance counselors, and start to talk about what scholarships are available. I remember in high school, uh, Allison, uh, there were scholarships for the tallest girl. What? Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Like a very tall alumni um, set up this scholarship. I guess being tall in the 40s was not cool. But anyway, she wanted to benefit really tall girls. There's a long list of scholarships. Yeah. You don't have to be a straight A student. You can simply be the tallest girl and, uh, <laughs> and get the money. I know. The school that they choose won't be a good school because they spent three times what you could afford. It'll be a good school because they put three times the energy they needed into that education to get out of it. What will make them a success. There you go. Say Susan just gave you permission to say no. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not only giving you permission to say no with explanations and hearing your kid out, but I'm telling you it's critical for you to be the adult in the room. They can't be. They need you to do this for them. They need you to make sure that they don't end up graduating with so much debt that they need to service that they don't get to do what their heart's desire was in the first place. And you wrote a great article about this. And we'll link that article to, uh, to the show notes. That's a good one. Uh, where else can we find you? And uh, how can we follow you, Susan? Uh, listeners can follow me at my blog, which is at susanbeecham.com, and they can find Money Savvy Generations award-winning products and some free resources at moneysavvy.com. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Sandy. All right. That's another show. Let me know if there's a, a topic that you want us to answer in No Dumb Questions, if there's a guest you want me to try to get on the show, or if you need help talking to the kids about money, this podcast is for you. Cheers to every single one of you who is proud to say that you are on your way to being a financially confident woman. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Seven Figures Podcast. Click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Seven Figures is sponsored by Advantage Federal Credit Union.